informative, educational, insightful. You're listening to VoiceAmerica.com. We are broadcasting live at VoiceAmerica.com, and we have a fantastic panel right now with the fabulous John Roberts, Chief Digital Officer of Una Murray Productions, and the fabulous Jocelyn Johnson of Video Inc., who's going to be doing a nice fireside chat with John to really get into what are some of the trends happening in our world today as broadcast and broadband really come together in all sorts of exciting new business models. And if you like what you're hearing today, just drop your business card in our jar over there because we're podcasting and we're streaming live today and you can get all this content later to hear in your own home on voiceamerica.com. So ladies and gentlemen, take it over, Jocelyn and John. Cool, hello everybody, thanks for uh, joining us here. So I um, like to lead more integrated sessions rather than do the traditional we talk and wrap back and forth and then you guys have to hold your questions till the very end, very patiently. Um, I'm gonna let you just chime in as you have questions and when we're talking through different things. So um, to start, I, John, I feel like most people are probably familiar with Buna Murray from seeing the, you know, the logo at the end of some of the very popular series on TV, but why don't you talk a little bit about how you guys are, as a business, bridging digital and broadcasting. Sure. I, I will say that, uh, so back in 1992, uh, John Murray and the late Mary Alice Bunham um, were out, you know, pitching shows like any produ- small production company, and they'd gone to MTV to pitch a, a drama, a scripted drama about young, uh, young people coming out of college and living together, and the reaction was, great idea, but it's gonna be way too expensive to cast this. And then they said, well, what if we just use real people? And for better or worse, there became reality television back in 1992, and Real World's now in its 32nd season. Uh, it spun off uh, a bunch of things like uh, Road Rules, The Challenge. Uh, eventually, we made a deal with the Kardashian clan and keeping with the Kardashians and educational programming just like that. Um, but no, it's done really well for everybody. We did Project Runway. And the way we've kind of moved on to where digital comes is we still say one thing. There's like all these little quotes on our walls at Buna Murray, and one of the biggest quotes is, we're storytellers. And we want to tell, we feel like in reality, everybody has a story, and how do we best tell that? And that's kind of how we're approaching digital. And the opportunity there is everything from our, the, the YouTube stars that all, in, in one weird way, you could say when in real world, when those kids were looking at the camera in the confessional booth and talking about their life right to the viewer, there was that engagement, that connection. And that's kind of what YouTube was in many different ways. So we fell right into that kind of world. Um, in digital, we're doing what I would call more experimental programming. You know, we are doing some type of docu-series and different things like that, but we're doing our first scripted uh, animated series. Um, and we're looking at ways of just expanding that because the platforms that have emerged, there are so many different ways for let for people to get their stories out there. You know, whether it be through Crackle, or YouTube, or Yahoo, or AOL, or all the over-the-top places and over the air we're gonna talk about. It's just a really interesting time, and it's like, I've never seen like the landscape so wide open right now, and it's just a great time to be in the, the world of production. Yeah, it seems um, pretty interesting because for a while, the television um, studio you know, networks and the, and the traditional studios were pretty reticent to really jump over onto the digital side, but now you see that more and more and more. Um, But one area where I think that we're not seeing um, a matchup just yet is on the budget side of things. It seems that digital still has, um, you know, smaller budgets to work with, but also it's not as expensive to make that content necessarily. So, I mean, do you see that and kind of get excited and think, oh my gosh, we can do so much more with this type of budget and also 
we're not held to the type of um, measurement standards just yet, so we can be a little bit more rogue. Yeah, and that's what's really interesting, because I was actually in a conversation recently where, you know, we recently did a docu-series for like, what would probably cost television, you know, maybe an 800,000 to a million dollars an episode, we did the entire series for under that, for the entire budget, and it looked like it could be on broadcast. And what we were trying to explain to people, and, and uh, someone I won't, they won't say their name, just looked at that and said, how are you doing that? And that's because the next generation of storytellers is doing just that, and that's what's gonna change the dynamic. It's kind of like, you know, produce low, sell high. Um, you know, the fact that we can learn that, we can, we can tell those stories in budgets in a different way. I mean, remember when John Murray saw something we produced, he goes, this, I cannot differentiate this and television, and it's the same quality. And because that's scary to me, but also exciting. And that's, it allows us more opportunity, though, to go out there and get those stories out there. Um, I met with a young filmmaker once. Um, I, I saw an article about him that he had done a movie that he just borrowed his dad's Canon, um, whatever the high-end Canon camera was. And he had all these special effects stuff that he used on his own. He had one actress. He did everything himself. The sound, he had no crew, just him and this woman, the actress. And it was an eight-minute short called Beyond. It was stunning, and he did it for, I want to say, like probably $1,000 of cash, and then who knows how much time, probably three or four months of his own time. The thing had got such accolades that uh, Sci-Fi Channel picked it up as a TV series and gave him a development deal. That's the opportunity, that if you, if you have that, the ideas and the quality, you can get that out there, and that's what I find to be exciting. And to your point about the budgets, it used to be pennies to dollars. Now I'm starting to see silver. Like there's quarters and 50 cent pieces to dollars where you know, YouTube Red literally is you know, using six figure budgets per episode, which was unheard of just yeah. a couple years ago. So personally, I hope YouTube Red succeeds, but obviously we know there's, there's challenges in, among all this stuff. Yeah, I want to get into the anatomy of a, of a couple of the projects that you guys have because there are a lot of different platforms right now and you guys have projects with a lot of them. So. Um, one of those projects in particular that we were talking um, about previously was Happy Wheels. I'm and so excited about Happy Wheels. So Happy Wheels um, is a project that Buna Marie has done um, with Machinima and was placed for first window distribution on Go90 um, Verizon streaming service. So um, maybe talk to us about how you discovered that property, how you developed it from a, a popular video game that had what, like 1.8 million so, so is anyone, okay, first of all, is everyone familiar with Machinima? Okay, so great gamers, um, MC, multi-channel network. Um, another question, anyone know about Happy Wheels? Good, no, most people don't, which is awesome, but you will. Um, so I, my nephew at the time, a couple years ago, was 13 years old, and since he was two years old, he would sit on my lap and I would show him how to play video games, and I am totally a dork for that world. Um, and so now at 13, I was talking to him, he lives in New York, and I was like, hey, Alex, uh, what game should I be playing? And I could literally hear him roll his eyes, like, what are you talking about, Uncle John? Console, PC, are you talking about iOS? What do you, what, how about just something on, you know, on, on a website? He goes, well, you should be playing Happy Wheels. So I had no idea what it was. I find out that it's got eight to 10 million players a month on this one game. It's a ragdoll physics-based game. It's got these insane, crazy characters and you're going through these obstacle courses that are made by the users. And so it's like this ant farm mentality. This guy that created the game is giving his users all the tools to continue to create this game. But what I loved was the characters. And all you would see is the profile, nothing more. They never spoke except you'd hear their bones break and grunts when they got killed. 
And I said, I have to tell us. And I remember telling somebody in the office about it. They said, we're going to put the violence back into cartoons. Um, so hence, we, we created Happy Wheels. I got the rights from the guys. One guy, his name's Jim Bonacci, who created the game. He did all the coding, all the artwork. And we sold it in the room to Machinima. And then we, a year ago, at the Digital New Fronts in New York, where you pitch the shows, um, it got picked up within three weeks by Verizon. And we're launching it sometime in Q3 of this year. And we've got a combination of YouTube stars that are doing the voices as well as traditional actors. And it's, uh, it's going to be 10 three-minute episodes. And it's, it's really exciting. So I find this deal um, particularly interesting, not just because the colorful backstory that you have, but also because it's a signal of the maturity of deals that are being done. I mean, before you'd have these kind of really quick projects that were done, they'd be slapped up on YouTube or you know, put up on Vimeo, Hail Mary, it's gonna capture some audience, maybe some brand will give you some money and you'll you know, tuck that away in your pocket and feel somewhat validated about your, about your show and then it would disappear into the ether. But with this deal, you guys, Bunim still retains the IP. Yep. Um, Machinima licenses it as a distributor. They set it up for first window distribution with Go90, and then after that, you guys will continue to distribute through Machinima, yeah. or? Daniel Tibbetts, who's the chief content officer at Machinima, has really built this model out, he's done a really great job to say, listen, if we just put it on the Machinima platform, and that's it, it just stays there. So let's start to figure out windowing, where it's gonna go there for however long it takes, then we move it to this, then we move it to that. So you're going from like, you know, ad-based to subscription-based, and trying to figure out how we roll that out over time and I think it's a really smart move um, when you look at you know brands matter because now we know that you know when we were talking about it we said we already know that eight to ten million people will play this game last fall when we um, were in the middle of uh, still pre-production he launched Jim Bonacci launched the app so he hadn't had an app for this game not only was the number one game in the app store it was the number one app for 14 days because he just linked off of his website to it. So that's like, we have the potential as a big success on this thing. But you know, we, had the, we, we treated this very serious. Like the writer on the script was a writer from uh, Community. So we got a, a, a great writer. We didn't just slap it up together. We got, you know, we cast it properly and we've really taken the time to make this. I remember showing it to our CEO who's not necessarily the guy that gives a lot of compliments. And he's like, this thing looks really professional. Like, what do you think we're gonna do, use crayons? I mean, so he, he, it's one of those things where this could be on television as much as it could be on, on the internet. So that obviously makes a lot of the networks a little nervous. I mean, their business models are being called into question. Everybody's rapping about OTT. They can buy it. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you think is the future for some of these, these cable networks that are, that are frightened about losing audience and how to retain their business? I think what I'm watching now, are we, our friend Sean Atkins left Discovery to go run MTV. Yep. And I think what's happening is you're starting to see the cable networks realize that a lot of their younger audience is not watching te television. They don't have cable, they don't have satellite, um, they've got Hulu or they've got their smart television. They've, they're buying rabbit ears at Best Buy for 60 bucks and they're getting all the channels they want. So they're trying to figure out that they still have IP and brands. Like, I, they're still watching The Walking Dead. They're still gonna find these shows. And I think they're starting to realize like, we've got to build a model that still allows us to get our content out in other platforms. So I think, like anything, it's going to evolve. I mean, I remember people saying back in the day when the movies were going to VH, VHS, it's like, yeah. it's going to kill the movie business. Well, they created the home video department. Then it went to all these different things. They'll evolve. You're starting to see all these acquisitions. 
you know, Disney buying Maker. I, I think that they'll figure out how to do that, but they're going to have to make changes because those that don't are going to disappear. And um, a big question that's being called in, especially for, for this particular track, is what happens with the advertisers. And there's been sort of some murky transitioning happening where they become the they become the publishers themselves. Some people, you know, have been very successful at that. Yeah. Everybody cites Red Bull as that. That's quite antiquated example now, right. but. You know, Marriott, a newer brand on the market that's been doing this in a Marriott's way. killing it. They're doing a great um, job. Is that is that the future? All brands as video publishers owning their own IP, or I think some of them have had great starts. Like Marriott's done a great job, but there's others that have actually I can't name names just right now because we're maybe doing some business with them. But they started by trying to create a studio or doing this themselves, and they didn't have the success. And now they're partnering up with production companies like ourselves and other production companies to say. Why don't we partner up? We've got money and brand. You've got the production and creative. And why don't we be partners in this and we can own, co-own the IP and then go and find the distribution together. And that, I think, is an interesting model. And they're not trying to even do things with product integration anymore. What they're trying to do is saying, back to the 1950s, it's more like so-and-so presents and that's the content. Because that, to them, they still get to affiliate themselves with a brand. If it's compelling content and they brought it to the table, there's a good feel about the brand. Mm -hmm. So, the other deviation from advertising that's been happening right now is um, this, the, I guess, gold rush to create this, the SVOD or to have transactional VODs sort of on the iTunes or Google Play or Amazon um, model of things. So, I mean, what do you think about those, those business models? For you as a production company, I'm sure it's great. You don't really care as long as they're buying your, your Listen, stuff. Listen, we, we actually, I'll wear a sign. We'll produce content for food, money, whatever you want to do. Like we have, like we'll, we'll sell it to you, we'll use your, however. But as a consumer, like I'm in that, I'm in that weird demographic because I have every single channel through Seth. I buy everything, but I also have my Hulu Plus account and, and I actually pay for the extra money so I don't have to see advertisement. So, and, and everything I DVR, so I don't watch anything live. So, the people that are doing the commercials, that's what's gotta be figured out. The fact that Hulu Plus said, for an extra three bucks a month, you don't have to see commercials. I'm like, done. Like, How many times have they said that? I mean. They always give me more ads. Yeah, but. Anybody else have that same problem? They like tell us that we're gonna pay nine seven ninety nine then nine ninety nine for oh, no ads. Oh, they keep changing it. And yeah. And it's like now it's like fifteen bucks, and I'm like, but hey, still, I still it's I'm still okay with it. <laughs> but that's the thing. So, but I think what's gonna happen is that they're starting to realize that these models have got to evolve. It goes back to like even like what's the one time a year we don't mind seeing commercials? That's Super Bowl. So why not? Why the rest of the year we're we not creating entertaining commercials? No. Geico does a great job. They're able to do these things, and especially when you come to digital. You know, Vine takes six seconds to tell a story, and yet you watch a YouTube video, and, and there's like 30-second commercials, but you can skip the ad in like five seconds. So why are you not creating, getting the Vine people and figuring out how to tell a commercial in five seconds? Because it can be done. I watch a lot of interesting, compelling Vines that are great. So I think that the model has to evolve, and advertisers especially, I know they're looking at it, they're trying to figure it out, and there's a lot of experimentation going on, but at the end, they're the ones that are gonna help fund this content, and they just have to figure out how to get their brand forward the best way. And on the OTT side, I mean, do you think that there's gonna be a threshold for the SVOD, um, the, the players who are trying to compete in SVOD, including YouTube Red, Spotify, Vessel, 
full screen, and then also on the on the more traditional side, you've got Comcast with Watchable and Dish with Sling. I mean. The only way they can succeed is to bring content that's going to be worth paying for. So YouTube Red, that'll be the really interesting way to watch how this plays out the next six months. Because we're going to find out if these YouTube fans, because if anyone's ever gone to VidCon, it's the most, it's like Beatlemania every five minutes. Like these YouTube stars, you never realize the power they have until you go to, to VidCon and see just how much they're, they're loved by their hardcore fans. So the question is, will YouTube Red, because YouTube Red, has this rule basically saying, we're gonna buy your content, but you've gotta bring a YouTube star to the table that's got at least a million subscribers and get somewhere between three to five million views per video. Then what's your amazing content that you're gonna tie them up with? Then you've got a show. So the question is, and they're gonna put it behind a paywall. So will this, you know, one to two million subscribers, because they love them so much, be willing to go see PewDiePie and pay a subscription fee to go have a YouTube Red account? We'll see. If it works, then it opens up the door for everybody. So I kind of have this, um, I want to devil's advocate this a little bit on the fan okay. side. Let's I think you wrote about that, bring too. Bring out the boxing gloves. Um, so there's sort of a common or a well-known internal stat at YouTube that you know only 15 to 20% of a YouTuber's audience is actually active. Um, so if you know PewDiePie has 40 million subscribers, he doesn't have actually 40 million people that yeah. are active with it's him, like right? Four, so three, two to four million. Yeah. So then, if you think about that, and you and you look at the conversion from them being able to translate that, um, Rooster Teeth being a recent example, them at the box office, they've got twenty-five. They claim twenty-five million um, fans or you know people across their platforms. Yet they sold a million at the box office. Right. So that conversion is less than one person. It's it's the question. The question right? was: so, Was the shit was the movie that good though? So. They, for the, the other argument, though, is that for the diehard fans, they don't care. They just want to see it, even if it was like two talking puppets. Right, right. So that's the thing. So you can get that initial oomph, but yeah. if you don't follow up on it with great content, then you're, that's where you're going to get screwed. Okay. Because that's what, in my opinion, like when we launch Happy Wheels, we will on that first episode, because all the YouTube stars that are doing the voiceovers, like we've got, you know... Um, Captain Sparkles, who's got like eight to 10 million subscribers. We got Brizzy Voices, Ricky and Elliot. The question begs, they're gonna talk about it the day it airs, so we will potentially get a lot of their audience to show up. If the show's bad, they're not gonna come back. So the, it's up to us to make sure that we make that content compelling enough so that we, we build it up and then we build up that, and, and get the non-fans as well to say this is a fun cartoon to watch. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question is, like, what do you think the threshold is for expectation of driving these fans to all these different places? Because um, Bart Baker, another example, has a vessel. He yep. windows his stuff early there. He's got a show on Go90. He's got, he had his stuff on Samsung Milk Video. Um, so, like, how much do you think that there's going to be a threshold where the fan says, I'm not going to just continually rabbit trail hop? That's a great question. Places? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I really think it's going to be how... How big are these stars and how much does the fans, well, at one point will they be, get bored with them? Because that is gonna happen. Like, <clears throat> YouTube does one thing well, and that's like, they're not afraid to take some risks and do some different things. Like, it wasn't just a few years ago that they were launching the YouTube channels. Mm -hmm. And the idea there was they're gonna put $5 million, up to $5 million per channel. What they learned very quickly was a lot of people didn't care. Like, they gave Ashton Kutcher $5 million to have a channel on YouTube, but they said, no one's showing up. They call that, I don't know how much money they spent, maybe like about 100 million? 100, yeah. 100 million, well, but they said it was an experiment. 
and that they, they learn from it and that moved them to that next thing, which is this. If it works, great, but I think that YouTube is gonna continue to experiment and that this is, a lot of this is the expectations. They don't talk about the expectation numbers. They just know that they're gonna put everything against this and do their best and if it doesn't work, well, come up with that next experiment. When it comes to renewals, you guys have had a few different projects renewed and there have been a, quite a few different companies that have launched products or um, shows on Go90 or you know, YouTube Red, whatever it might be, um, that get renewed. Um, and this is a common problem with Netflix as well. Is what kind of transparency do you guys have into why or the, the quantifying numbers that got your show renewed? So that's a great question. And one of the things that we did with a, a multi-channel network called Dance On, they had a show with us, um, woman, uh, 19 years old, named Chachi Gonzalez. She was one of the uh, winners of uh, America's Best Dance Crew. And we did a, a docu-series called Chachi's World. And um, we, made, we shook hands to produce it in October and we delivered it by December. So it was a very quick turnaround. Um, they put it on Go90, and I remember sitting down with Aaron Flood of her Go90, she's like, oh, it's a hit. I'm like, oh, what are the numbers? She's like, we don't talk about that. I'm like, I mean, is it? She's like, I will tell you that it did much better than expected, and we're really excited about it. And then we got the call from Dance on to do a second season, which we're in production right now on. And I'm still so curious. It's like, since they're not rating and talking about it, that I don't know, and I would love to just be a fly on the wall to hear how people are talking about, you know, what succeeds, what's successful and not. So does that frustrate you, or maybe for some of your peers in the production space, um, of not having the proper intel on how to inform development decisions moving forward, or production decisions moving forward? Well, you, you take what you can get from those decisions. So what I'm learning is that, again, Chachi Gonzalez had a huge following on YouTube, and fans that wherever she goes, they flock they flock her. So we know that popularity and brand matters. We understand that um, certain genres really, really well. So dance, comedy, music. So we're looking at those types of things and what we can pull from that. And you know, we're going back in and trying to pitch dance on other concepts based on what we've seen success so far. But it would be much better to know certain schematics that we could at least know the algorithm, but I don't know if there is one at this point. And then when, did, are you given any intel, maybe not just with, um Go90, but any of these platforms, are you given any intel on how you're performing in relation to other similar series? They won't in talk about that. No, they're very tight lipped on that. They just say, Don't worry, you're doing great. So like, I, okay. Do you think that's going to be a, a barrier to the crossover for some of the cable companies or the traditional production companies who are used to having those types of metrics? It, it depends because I think that you look at the okay, look at Nielsen is archaic. You know, that, I don't, that, I mean, it means nothing anymore. I mean, you, you look at those numbers anymore, it's just someone's got to figure out a much better way of measurement. So I think it comes down to engagement. What are people doing? What's, it, what's the perception and reality? And if you have something that looks great and it's good content, I think the networks will look at that. Like, I could see Chachi's world eventually on linear, if that's what they chose to do and wanted to be in that, that, that audience. I think international is another in interesting thing because Digital, you can still do really cool things and, and for low cost, incubate content. You know, CWC does an amazing job at taking content in the digital, launching it at their, their local .com, and then they've actually taken it from the web and put it onto TV. So when you have those opportunities, you can experiment because the cost of a pilot, you can do an entire series in digital and, and even less than the cost of a pilot. Does anybody have questions so far? Yeah. 
Sure. Do you want that microphone? Oh, there you go. With all of the um, intermingling, let's say, of all sure. of the different media platforms, linear and digital and all that kind of stuff, just made me think when you were talking about advertising, um, I, I do consumer research, so I talk to consumers all the time. And you know, Get up here. Has, <laughs> has a really valuable role to play, right? Consumers right. skip commercials, but they'll also tell you when it's relevant to me, when it's personalized to my needs, when it you know relates to something that I'm interested in, I'll watch it. And so it just made me think, you know, you're in production, right? So where do the lines start getting blurred? I mean, do you see yourselves uh, in some near or perhaps more distant future actually going into the advertising space? Because, you know, I could see a show that's got a, a star that might be a YouTube star and then, oh, wow, and then the ads actually include that same, you know, person in the ad. And Logically, that makes, like, you know, you would think, because, you know, what I do find that some of the brands that, again, I can't name, are, if they're coming to the production companies to help create content, they're realizing, like, maybe there's a way of blending that together. I mean, it's been done in its own way of product integration, right? So, you know, you watch Amazing Race, you know, that Ford Focus is not there coincidentally. I mean, they're paying a nice price tag to be in there. Um, I think that they're trying to go away from like, you know, like on American Idol, everyone's holding a Coca-Cola. So there's different ways of doing that, but I do think that there's ways, like I would love to be producing six second commercials for YouTube all day long because I'll just hire some great Vine stars and make it really fun. But I, I think it's a, a very good, po valid point. We have another question here. Um, back to what you were just talking about, what rights are most important to you? Um, is it the distribution? Is it per platform? How you're working with your third-party productions, Wait, did you say what, what rights? Oh, I'm sorry. It's okay. Hi. I'm much better. There you are. Hi. Um, what what rights are most important to you? Is it about distribution? Is it you know when you're going off onto all these platforms? Is it windowing? For me, right now, like when I'm doing digital, the the rights I want ownership or at least co-ownership, because traditionally, like you know, with Buna Murray Productions, you know, we don't own Real World. You know, we license that off to MTV. So. I would love nothing more than to take real world and, and do something in the digital world that evolve. I would love to do a mix up to show uh, through all the different casts, having some of them live together and create another version of it just based on all past cast members in, in the way it could cut it up. You know, it was at Endemol, we owned Fear Factor. And what we ended up doing was creating a, a YouTube channel called Fear Factor Moments and taking the best of all the Fear Factors and created something really cool because we own that IP. So I think ownership is, is a great right to have. Um, you know, distribution, I'm, I'm open to figuring out where that can live. But if you say the most important thing, I, I think I'd like to be able to have, own my own IP. Because I can do a lot more with that then. When we were talking earlier, John, you were also commenting about your chicken and egg issue. Right. And the, the chicken and the egg thing sometimes is you've got like, the distribution. Here's a concept. And it's great. And we go to a distributor and they're like, we love this. How are you going to pay for it? Well, like, well, we're thinking about an advertiser. Then we go to the advertiser and go, well, where is it going to be distributed? So sometimes we have to figure that, that there's a balance there to saying like the, the advertiser will say, we'll finance this program for you, but you have to make sure that we like the distributor, that they got a nice reach. And then you go to the distributor, like, well, what brand are you going to bring on? Because we want, we want to make sure that's friendly to our distribution. So it is a lot of moving around. And sometimes it just comes together perfectly. And then there's days I just want to go crazy. Any other questions that are bubbling up out there? OK, I don't see any. Um, so I do want to touch a little bit on um, how, how much are the people standing here or sitting um, familiar with the MCNs and sort of 
that side of the business. Um, anybody? Largely? Okay. Um, so I'm just curious because we'll breeze through this if there's not a lot of you guys. Um, but I'm curious, like, what's the, what do you think the future of, of the MCN model is? Because they were s sort of bridging this position of talent management, production, but not really because they outsource that to companies like you guys, right. distributors, because they're kind of plugged into YouTube, so they're not really the distributor. They just have a channel on YouTube. So I mean, when you look at what it was, it's just changed. I mean, in the beginning, it was like, oh, you're a YouTube creator, but you, you're specific in this one genre. So you're a gamer, YouTuber, come over to Machinima. Oh, you're into dance, come to dance on. You know, But now when you look at like, like a Maker Studios owned by Disney, they're doing you know everything from TV, film, licensing, and merchandising. I mean, they're, they've evolved so much, and the question begs, what is next? And when you think about all the acquisitions that have happened, so you know, um, Maker went to Disney, uh, Big Frame went to Awesomeness, then you've got uh, Full Screen went to AT and T. It's like they're all getting absorbed, and then most recently, we thought Machinima was going to go to Warner Brothers. Yep. It's just a, it's a crazy time to where you're thinking, but back to like the studios are watching. They want to get involved. And this is again a way to hedge their bets. So I do think you'll see more of these and then there'll be a whole new generation of something we won't call MCNs that'll pop up for these creators that you know start from the ground up. So if we look at some of those acquisitions, I mean DreamWorks with Awesomeness, yep. the original one, went for Brian Robbins because he's a production guy. Yep. He understands the business of building IP and distributing that IP. Um, Maker Studios maybe more as a marketing vehicle for Disney and an opportunity for them to have wider reach. Um, I wonder though, do you think that inherently these companies are being picked off one by one because of their reach with talent or because of their production? They, do, they, do you think these digital companies are perceived as being stronger in digital production? Or I think understanding the young generation? Both. I think that because A, they know how to talk. They, they're trying to figure out, like, when you think about Disney and Maker and that younger demographic, the fact that even when Star Wars opened, they had all these YouTubers doing these unboxing of, of Star Wars merchandise. I mean, that in itself made, I'm not going to say it paid for the acquisition, but they're using it in the right way. And if, it's, if it was just for marketing, it was a great acquisition. But if they can start to figure out and take a handful of that talent and figure out how to put them onto their networks and in their films and then get the audience based on that, that'll be just brilliant. Mm -hmm. But time will tell to see if that will pay off or not. Okay. Um, we have a few more minutes and I definitely want to touch on live because that's the other kind of hot and topic. And over the air too. Um, oh yeah, over the air. Um, and I feel like you're, you're actually one of the perf most perfect people to be talking to about this because at Endemol, you guys were very strong in the reality side, and some of it had a live kind of... Sure, like Big Brother. Yeah, yeah. Big Brother for sure. Um, real world, even though it was somewhat recorded and, and distributed, it fe could feel like it was almost live and not necessarily crazy edited. And in we're the launching days, a lot right? of live stuff right now, too. So, um, so how, do you guys, how are you guys viewing the opportunity for live, either through Facebook or you now or... I'm really excited about that because like, I, I also spent seven years at um, running digital and, and interactive for Game Show Network. So I'm a, I'm a game show dork all day long and I would love to figure out and I feel like, you know, with live and, and different things like that, you can literally do, like on Facebook Live, I'd love to do a live game show. And you literally pull, like, like Price is Right, you would pull the contestants from whoever's logged in right then and there and do some really cool things. So I, I think that there's a lot of ways to create new types of programming that you know, if you fish where the fish are, the challenge in live 
overall sometimes is that you know we're living in a society that is so you know they want their content when they want it but this might be a way if we if it's done right to have live have a whole new resurgence other than just sports yeah, because I feel like live has has been a little engine that could yeah. for like years. I, I kind of think it's going to happen and then it doesn't. And then I think it's going to happen and then it doesn't. And I sort of am a little bit skeptical this and time, it, even though Facebook is I, putting all the muscle behind it. But it will come back to what I think the theme is, is great, compelling content. Give them a reason. Why do I need to see it live? Like I think back to Red Bull did it when that guy jumped from space. You wanted to see that live because what's going to happen? It's got to be what is about to happen. And there's got to be a reward, too. So if I'm doing something like a live game show and you need to be there to win, there's a reason to make that happen. Glenn Friedman. And it's just, um, you know, those are the things that I think we have the, uh, the opportunity for. So we I have questions coming up over here. Sorry, I thought that right here. I actually have another question. Yeah. Because that Wait. Like <laughs> okay, make love to this. Uh, I, I wouldn't. Real close. <laughs> <laughs> But there's an interesting contradiction in that, right? Because because really, when you say live, the examples you said are really appointment television, right? That's right. We know that's going to happen, and so we tune in, which is a little contradictory to the, I'm just on Facebook and happen to catch this thing. Although I can say that if you did that game show on Facebook, I would likely get addicted. See, and that goes back to what I think about compelling content, but you're right. Appointment TV has worked with sports, some news, and depending on what it is, where you have some type of payoff. But <clears throat> other than that, I mean, look, at when I was doing at, at Game Show Network, we did a lot of the second screen play along. We were always saying, you need to be logged in and watch this game show. Even though it's a repeated game show, you get to play along with it while you're watching it, and you will get prizes for doing so. So that was kind of our battle back then. And you know, I think we'll continue to try to figure that out. What do you think the advertising opportunity is going to look like inside of live, if any? Back to integration, I think. I think that they can be um, a way of by. presented by. I think we're going right back to like back in the day where Marlboro presents or the Geritol Hour. It's going to be about how do brands get associated with the content that they're presenting. And if you give them rewarding content, then it's guilt by association in a good way. Okay. Um, any last? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to also remind everybody that Video Inc., you can get a daily news, newsletter, and uh, Jocelyn's team does a fantastic job. And so I wanted to ask the two of you, because you're both trendmeisters, uh, there was just an announcement that Obama signed a bill that it's going to open up the set-top box now. So it won't be just, you know, your cable operator. But now all these other solutions can now sell all-in-one, including Roku and everything else. So it's going to open up what that piece of tech is in your house now. So I'm wondering, do you guys think about, how do you think that's going to impact things? I mean, we're at a traditional broadcast show that now has a lot of digital peeps. What, what's going to happen when that, those traditional set-top boxes now kind of explode into other things? You go first. I think that those, you know, look at, I remember back in the day I was saying that just an Xbox was a set-top box waiting to happen. I agree. And so I think that you know we're just going to continue to see what we're seeing, which is this explosion. Like my, I have a four-year-old, and he will never know that YouTube is not a channel because he watching him use. We have a Samsung smart TV. I'm not being sponsored by Samsung, but he will take the remote, click on the OTT menu, launch YouTube, and then start to um, watch whatever he needs to watch. And it's an interesting time, but you know the fact that whether it's a smart TV or a set-top box or whatever your device is. It's going to be turnkey. You're going to be able to do a lot more. The fact that I can already order, if I, if I wanted to order a pizza, I mean, that was always the long joke, but it's happening and no one cares. 
I, uh, I echo a lot of your thoughts on that. I, for a long time, have just felt that Roku and Apple TV and all of those are just a new iteration of a cable box. It's just through the internet, not through, which is nothing new. That this is redundant to what a lot of people's opinions are on that. Um, but I think the inherent opportunity that lies in, in that um, ruling is that the issue that content creators consistently face, um, meaning professional production companies, the distributors, the individual individuals um, as well, is the discovery element. Yes. So if there's an opportunity for everyone to stop being so precious about their particular brand and recognize that people may be dedicated to Roku or dedicated to Apple TV, and now let's house all of that there and build a discovery algorithm that's inside of that product, that I think the content creators and the, and the production companies and even some of the distributors like Milk or Go90 or even Facebook potentially with what they're doing with video would see this holy grail moment of like, wait, if it's all gonna be matched together and now it, the algorithm's gonna surface anything I, that's I, related to X, I Y, and Z. I completely agree with that. I then think it's we'll cool. be in a great place. Yeah, and the other thing that we were talking about earlier that is a whole other thing too that we're not even talking about, which is like this whole resurgence of the rabbit ears and you know, o over the air. There's like 30 channels you can get right now that you know, if you don't want cable or satellite, you hook up your digital antenna and not only are you gonna get all your regular broadcast, but there's, you know, Grit for Men, Escape for Women, Bounce for Urban, um, there's a new network, Laugh, L-A-F-F, -F, that's comedy. And it goes right back to the days of where we were with cable. And, and it's like a lot of these um, networks are like acquired programming, but eventually you're gonna start seeing original programming and that's gonna turn everything upside down as well, I think. Yeah, I've also had this long soapbox rant, rant that I've been meaning to write that I haven't penned yet, but how the um, smart TV apps actually are cannibalizing the, can the cable businesses model all around. Because they, they're saying that they're driven by consumer behavior, that everybody wants it all a cart, and so that's why they built smart TV apps. But what they're doing is they're reinforcing a behavior that's saying it's okay to get this on, your, on its own, and they're gonna eventually perpetuate the unraveling of the bundle, which is holding everything together. And then they're gonna have to price it for an internet model, which is gonna be $3, that's and right. they'll be screwed. That, that's exactly <laughs> that's right. That's where all the money like hemorrhages out of the business. If they had just mi like migrated the bundle over and kept scripts, and then you get some fancy scripts app that has all of them together still. I would be HGBTV all over that. TV and food and whatever, the bundle mentality would stay there, and people would pay $20 for, and they would probably still have the same cable bill. Just on a Roku. And I look at an audience and say, you know, I'm willing to buy my apps and all these other things for 99 cents or $3. And sometimes you're like, oh, I would never want to do that. I'm like, here I'm in Vegas. I just spent $15 on a martini. And that's gone in 15 seconds. No, no, not that fast. But my point is that it's like... <laughs> Don't if you, underestimate him. If you price this stuff right and it's compelling content, there are models that haven't even been had yet. And I think that that's what's really interesting about the world we're living in right now is that everybody has their high-def you know, 4K and they can build content. Everyone's got stories and if you start to figure out ways, it's just, it's never been a time like this. I think it's really exciting. Any other final questions? We're getting the signal. To all you live people who tuned in, thank you. Well, Our I fans, we love more, you. One more question you guys, just because uh, you have so much insight um, that I don't want you to leave yet. <laughs> but uh, we had a presentation yesterday by um, some researchers from CBS and Warner Brothers one of the things that they talked about was how everyone's always talking about millennials 
when it comes to content viewing behaviors and how they're messing up everything and they're changing everything. But a lot of what they talked about is that as millennials are aging up, they're sort of turning into longer viewing uh, folks and their, their behaviors are becoming more like Gen X and boomers. So I, I was wondering if you had any thoughts about you know, the much maligned millennial behavior as it relates to content and what's gonna happen as they age and will that impact a lot of these viewing habits that we're seeing now? I, I think so, I, I do. I mean, I think that we're already watching that a lot of what, you know, we were shooting three, four minute content. You know, Chachi's world is 11 minute episodes and we're probably gonna take those and marry them together to make longer form that will sell internationally. And I do think that depending on what the content is, I, I think they will evolve and I think we'll look at these days one day and go, remember that you know this is how we did that? That was so archaic and that's gonna be where we go. But I think that that audience is growing, it's changing and I'm more curious of what, what's behind them. You know, what are they gonna be looking for and how do we program for them as well? The plurals or the gen texters or whatever yeah. we're calling the people that have really good skin. What what are we what do you guys call them? <laughs> Millennia millennia or no. Oh, oh the younger ones? Yeah. My son? No. <laughs> I don't actually know yet. Um, yeah. Tweens? <laughs> um, no, I was going to say, I feel like it's a little bit difficult for me to answer on that side because I'm not on the production side of it. I'm not on the distribution side having to look at it. But um, one thing I, I do know is that even um, a platform such as mobile where people inherently say, you know, stick to the fact that it's always going to be hy hyper short form or micro length um, content. Go 90s been, and just recently, some of them haven't been announced yet, but um, you know, licensing and picking up 10, 30 minute episodes, right? And they're targeted towards that exact demographic, the millennial or even younger. Um, so they, they must have intel that says that there's gonna be a, a viewing audience that extends past that. And also, I just think it really comes down to what John was saying before, is if the storytelling is there, I mean, people will say, making a murderer was, not necessarily awesome programming, but people sat to, that could have been an hour and a half docu, like documentary film, and they somehow made it into a 13 hour docu-series yeah. that had no like culmination or big outcome, right? So I think if you can get people of all ages and generations to sit there and bridge through that, like there's probably just the right content can be right for any age. And I also think that we talk about mobile, and you start talking about how that is. It's like, you know, a lot of times we, mobile falls under the category of tablets as well. And look at this, the size of the screen. Like, I have someone that works with me that says, she has a TV and cable, but she actually watches everything on her iPad because that's more of an intimate experience. And so I think that, you know, the habits are changing. I think that the way people are consuming content, it's going to just be more and more the, the, the technology is going to drive some of this, but it's also going to be, again, what, what the content is. But like, I look at Go90. Does anyone know why they call it Go90? It's literally because they say you watch, this is your phone, but you go 90 degrees to watch your content. And that way it makes the screen a little bit more compelling to watch. So I just think it's, um, it'll be, we'll keep watching it. Okay, thanks everybody. Thank you so much. Have a hand for John Roberts from Unimurray and Jocelyn Johnson, Video Inc. And Check out uh, Video Inc. to get the subscription. And then Unimurray has lots of fun things going on. And you can follow them on Twitter and everywhere else. And if you'd like to hear this podcast again or any of the um, interviews that have been happening all week long here, just drop your business card in the jar. Informative. Educational. Insightful. You're listening to VoiceAmerica.com.